Is that the last donut with red, white, and blue sprinkles? What did I tell you would happen if you ate the last donut with red, white, and blue sprinkles? A little foggy on it, but I think it was something like raining down hellfire. That's right. And here I am without an umbrella. I feel a storm brewing. Podcast with your hosts, Tom, Silent Dave, Isaiah, and Jay. Fun, football, and conversation. There is again. Welcome to It's an Arsenal Thing podcast, episode 31, series 2, and I'm once again in the company of the smooth, unruffled, and soundless Silent Dave. He's like vocal custard. Here we are again after yet another portion of the international flummery. I don't know about you, but it's interrupted our run of 10 games and I'm miffed. That's right, I'm miffed. Let me make an awkward and slightly odd analogy of the Premier League and the international break. Now, imagine yourself in one of those blockbuster Hollywood bedroom scenes. There's luxury, there's candlelight, and perhaps a lighthouse family or Lamar playing softly in the background. You're on the bed with your wife, husband or partner, not all three at the same time. Could be a fantasy figure, film star, pop star, the person dolling out the pasties at the local baker's. You're just warming up, getting the vibe, revving the engine, going through the gears and about to do the deed. That's the Premier League. When in bursts a man blowing a trumpet and banging a drum. That's the international break. Ruined. The moment's gone. The mood has disappeared. They put clothes on. They're drinking tea and watching Panorama. All the fault of Gareth Bathsponge, who took his squad to Wembley to play another team of gas fitters, traffic wardens and beekeepers. What a week. Dean Smith's replacement, Stephen Gerrard, got a win at Aston Villa. Daniel Fark's replacement, Dean Smith, got a win at Norwich, and it was business as usual at Manchester United. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer can now join Sky Sports alongside the other high-profile managerial failure, Roy Keane, to talk about success. Irony and sarcasm will feature throughout the podcast in an effort to cleanse the palate of sour grapes. 
United fans need not despair because news has reached us here at It's an Arsenal Thing that Sam Allardyce is waiting by the phone as we speak. It's a yes for anyone that's asking. Hurrah! Episode 31 is entitled Lego Head Gets a Huff on at Anfield, a clear reference to the immovable hairstyle of Mikel Arteta and the handbag incident between Hair Klopp and Spanish Michael. Okay, so we lost, but we'll find some positives in a pile of negatives and look forward to welcoming the human rights abusers Newcastle. They desperately need a win or heads will literally roll. Is that too soon? Uh, Blame Dave. On the menu tonight, Isaiah carries out the post-mortem on the clash with Liverpool and delivers his analysis of the resounding thumping, including all the key points and takeaways. Jay joins me in a pensive gum room where we discuss Arsenal's attacking woes and we focus on its noticeable absence in the Liverpool game. Will Arteta and Edu Gaspar splash the cash in January? Who's available? Who can we afford and what could be done in the meantime? We'll be offering our opinion on the way forward. There's the WSL London derby with spuds and more action from the Champions League against the bottom of the table, Kia. I think I got that right. Our guest in the dugout is Greg Lansdowne, who has written Football Stickers and Official Celebration, a nostalgic journey through the world of Panini. We all remember Panini, the stickers, the albums. You've probably got some tucked away in the loft. If you have, join this conversation because you'll be stunned at how much they may be worth. Seeing as we're up at Anfield, let's have some fascinating facts. Anfield was originally the home of Everton, but they fell out with the owners over the rent they were charging, and they moved to Goodison Park in 1891. Liverpool may be known as the Reds today, but their original strip was actually blue and white quarters. Who wants another fascinating fact? I'll have one. Oh, Jamie Carragher's in. The Merseyside derby between Liverpool and Everton may be known as the friendly derby, but it's still produced more red cards than any other fixture in the league. And finally, Anfield was named after the Irish town Anfield in Wexford by the then Irish mayor of Liverpool, who bought the land where the stadium now sits. So what's the story on the origins of the term Scouse? The traditional explanation is that Scouse is a contraction of Lobscouse or Lobscouse, which is a type of Norwegian stew, once popular among sailors, but it can still be found in Liverpool today. It's typically made from chunks of meat, usually beef or lamb, potatoes and onions. It's an Arsenal thing podcast. Fun, football and conversation. Arsenal ladies were in action again in Europe this time in the Champions League. They needed a good performance and win to keep the pressure on the immaculate Barcelona. Here's how it went. Williamson, good movement again here from Nikita Paris. It's good goalkeeping, brave goalkeeping from Kaelin Marquis. Defend, it's sort of narrow and it's into out. So that sort of space is on every time for Nikita Paris. Missed that season's final through suspension, but did get four goals in six appearances. Arsenal seek to threaten from the corner. It's a good delivery there, and it's causing all sorts of problems. Kerr looking to scramble it clear. Leah Williamson had the shot that was blocked. And they just about got the job done there. Early crossing towards Miedemar, an important touch from the keeper, but Ford will keep it going. And this is Nikita Paris. What she brought down there, penalty. Paris was caught, and the referee almost immediately pointed to the spot. 
good ball being put in there. Had to come out, and it's just about defending the ball coming back in. Nikita Paris, a rash challenge, isn't it? She's well to keep the ball alive. Nikita Paris, she was just laying it off to. It is the player who won the penalty. He will now take it for Arsenal. Up against Marquise. Oh, saved! Brilliant stop there. Guessed the right way and got across so quickly. The penalty and it's well struck. She actually struck it really, really well. Marquise did so well to get herself right across. Paris will be gutted with that. We're actually the only side this season in any competition not to be beaten by three goals or more by Barcelona. Williamson. Miedemar Central, that's the target, and it was a good header, and another fine save from Marquise, who's having a good game. Miedemar, it's a superb ball from Williamson, and she just had to get a different direction on it, just to put the goalkeeper off and test the goalkeeper, she certainly did that. And the goalkeeper Marquise, who's had such a good start to this game, be called into action again here. Catley, forward, so oh, brilliant. What a wonderfully taken free kick that is from Steph Catley. Could not have been more precise. Floated shot. I think it was hit with some pace and spin. It was so difficult for Marquise to get anywhere near it. And usually left foot, as you can see, always spinning away right in the top corner. Didn't really need. Behind the goal, Steph Catley gave her side the lead with that lovely free kick. From another set piece, they seek to threaten again here. And what a save again that is from Marquise. Good reactions, was well positioned in the first place, but she's keeping her side in it in this first half. Ball, again, that's a delightful ball into the box, and it just, in terms of her intensity and her dynamic, it's, it is completely different to quite a lot of players in, in England. Miedemar. Marnham. Far away, nice Arsenal move there. Miedemar just dropped off, didn't she? Almost into a midfield area. And Looks to hit the byline. And it comes to Miedemar. Set up to be hit. Fully expected. Force. Catley makes the run beyond her. Crossing towards Miedemar. She looks like Miedemar got something on that. She was a goalkeeper. And Saving her team on many occasions, just a little touch there by Miedemar. Makes it so difficult for the goalkeeper, he has to react. Heinz of Lager, I can count in that picture there. I think the Arsenal fans are enjoying their evening. Oh, Bacorni in behind here. First chance of the game, really genuine opportunity. Catley. Up it goes to Miedemar. He holds off the challenge, and this spells danger. It's Miedemar, kept out by Marquise, who got her angle spot on. To a left foot, but this is the risk as well. When you get a few high hopes that you can get forward and, and get the equaliser, then you always risk this sort of attack from Miedemar. And again, the goalkeeper steps up and keeps her team in. Just about going to be kept in. Didn't reach Miedemar. Marnham hit it. Paris was there. 
What a good finish on the turn from the player who saw her penalty saved in the first half. She placed that wonderfully well to double Arsenal's lead. He's in the WSL right now. It was well weighted that ball, wasn't it? Terrific ball, ball in and just first to react, great first touch, Nikita Paris and just a twist, turn, good first touch, left foot, the space is wide for Arsenal, as soon as it goes centrally they just get crowded out. Miedemar. And good reactions from the goalkeeper Marquise Williams, Little. Loves to get on the turn and drive towards the edge of the box and finds Nobbs, who's hit the bar. And in it goes now from Caitlin Forbes. Her first European goal. Ends up at Kim Little, she makes a couple of strides forward, changes the picture. Again, Jordan Nobbs is there. Excellent shot. Don't know whether she saved that, Marky. The levels that she expects. I've worked with her in TV, I've played against her. and. And uh, she's so quiet and lovely, but people are as good as that. Then. There's Corny here. Oh, chance to get one back! And they do! Maddie for Corny! With what is Kier's first ever goal in the Champions League proper. She do get an opportunity. It's again, it's a straight ball, long ball, not cleared by Boy. Not cleared again. Steph Catlian first onto it, and it's a terrific finish in the end. And she took her time there, she had a look, see where the goalkeeper was. She just didn't get enough on it there, Catley, but she's busy, she's full of intensity, and she finished as well. Clayton Corny, she probably deserves that the way that she's worked in this game, particularly the second half. McCabe dropped nicely. And there was a deflection on that shot. The goalkeeper's reaction there, sticking out that left boot, kept it out really well. McCabe. Ford. Gliding inside and pass one challenge. And the pullback was brilliant. What a brilliant, fantastic Arsenal goal that is. Turned home by one of the substitutes, Patton. The goalkeeper well beaten this time, but all the hard work there done by Caitlin Ford, who's had a very good night. Arsenal goal as well. They're going in that inside channel and then cutting back. I knew exactly where that was going to be put. And it's a really good finish by her. Just looped, didn't it, into the far corner. To be fair to Marquise, she's done really, really well in goal. Cute. First time pass by Miedemar. It was precise as well to meet. And they get a fifth here. Arsenal. They can. How about that? From Jordan Nobbs. Right into the corner. She's a precision finisher. Meade's made a difference down that right-hand side. She's, her assists are unbelievable. Her assist stats it. Miedemar's there too. It's Miedemar who hits it. It was indeed the last action of the game. Comfortable in the end for Arsenal, who have five different scorers on the night. 
Famous Liverpool fans, Dr. Dre, the hip and happening Dr. Dre, friend of Eminem, he's a Liverpool fan. Samuel L. Jackson, he's a Liverpool fan. Nelson Mandela in his day was. Pope John Paul II, uh, is he, he's no longer with us, is he? I don't, how old is this? I don't know. You don't know. You gave me it. Okay. Uh, Mike Myers, Mr. Shrek. <laughs> Mr. Shrek, he's a Liverpool fan. Famous born and bred Liverpudlians. You may not know that these people were actually born in Liverpool. What about Lewis Collins, the smouldering, good-looking, curled-up lip, former professional? Hmm? He doesn't sound very scouse, does he? Fiona Bruce. Fiona Bruce, who doesn't sound very scouse, does she? She's very push. Uh, Mike Dean, uh, if I was in the records house now, births, deaths and marriages, I would make his disappear. You do not want to be associated with Michael Dean, thanks. Uh, Elvis Costello, the magnificent singer-songwriter, and the ultimate Bond, the modern-day Bond, Daniel Craig. I love Scousers, warm-hearted and genuine souls, but when they get excited, they tend to sound like a flute. They're all notes. There's no words. Listen to Jamie Carragher, who really gets his knickers in a twist on Sky. I can only spend 29 million. Stoke, spend 60 million. They're in the championship. Have you not worked out the stadium cost 600 million quid? Have you not this worked out yet? This is four years ago. Well, hang on a minute. The stadium's not been finished. It's only been 50 million on the budget. <laughs> it's only just started now, hasn't it? Oh, my God. Why do you keep stand? saying five or 600 million? <laughs> well, what's it cost? An extra 100 It's not cost of a tenner. Hi. I'm Brandon Murphy, from the land that gave you the ultimate shopping experience. Deluxe breast augmentation, automatic weapons, carjacking, Thanksgiving, and Robert Downey Jr., we bring you a bulging backpack of spectacular foosball entertainment in American Arsenology. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to American Arsenology. Brought to you by the Kyle Rittenhouse Jurors. What is wrong with you people? I'm your host, backsliding democracy, and now, tonight's top stories. Welcome back, me gunners and me gunnerettes. Mikel Arteta and his magic peacoat have been dispatched 4-0 by Jürgen Klopp and his puffy puffer coat at Anfield. It was an interesting battle with 30 minutes of even football and 60 full of a complete slaughter. Let's get right into it. The opening storyboard of this one featured manager Mikel Arteta taking his recently unbeaten 442-4411 hybrid into Anfield to battle the supercharged heavy metal Reds of Anfield. Let's dive a little deeper. With a bit of an interesting lineup, but one that featured faith and belief. Between the sticks, it was Aaron Ramsdale with Gabrielle and Penn White 
as the center backs. On the right-hand side, it was Takahihiro Tomiyasu. And, interestingly so, it was Mr. Nuno Tavares retaining his place as the left-back over the now-fit Kieran Tierney. This was a storyline, and we will address it. In front of the back four was Albert Sambi 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 Lokonga and my octopus teacher recently returned, quote-unquote, from fitness, Mr. Thomas Party. Outside of the double pivot, it was Bukayo Saka at the right and the Smith, Emil Smith-Rowe, coming in from the left channel. And, interestingly enough, retaining his place at Anfield was Mr. Alexander Lacassette. And up top it was our captain, Pierre Emmerich Aubameyang. Let me say this, folks. We will address the Tavares inclusion in the 11. But let me begin this discussion by saying... Good on Arteta for keeping the faith. It's a prayer about praising the Lord, telling the Lord how much we love him or her. But no matter what I do, I can't seem to be able to get you folks to sing it with any feeling. I mean, I brought in the band. That didn't work. I brought in my bongos last week. I think we can all agree that was a backwards step. <laughs> in the opening salvos of this one, it was clear that Mikel Arteta set his side out to absorb. And in the first 15 minutes, they were defending nobly. However, Arsenal would generate a chance of their own. It was the 16th minute with a fine interchange between Lacazette and Tomiyasu, the Japanese international's cross. Found Bukayo Saka in the 18-yard box, but his head was blocked by the ox. Yes, it was Oxlade Chamberlain playing in the middle of the park for the Reds of Liverpool. It was a decent block from Oxlade Chamberlain, who, it must be said, looked a bit out of his depth. On the day. Yeah. I am the walrus. That's ex Shut the fuck up, Donnie. V.I. Lennon. Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. What the fuck is he talking about? Fucking exactly what happened. Those, oh, that yeah. makes me But folks, in the 28th minute, the first real chance of the match would fall to Liverpool. As Mr. T.A.A. Trent Alexander-Arnold would swing in a peach of a cross. The loose ball found its way to Thiago Alcantara. And the Spaniard unleashed a left-footed volley. Ramsdale did well to save. But the loose ball found to a hungry Sadio Mane. As Mane prodded and poked at the rebound, attempting to flick it over Ramsdale, there was no love, there was no chance of him letting Mane through on this occasion. And folks, then, in the 32nd minute, one of the most explosive flashpoints of the season for Mikel Arteta and Arsenal. 
Sanyu Mane was adjudged by Arteta to have led with his elbow on an aerial challenge with Takahiro Tomiyasu. Yes, of course, Mane has a reputation for leading with the arm, and Arteta took umbrage with this play, folks. It fired up the little man with his Lego hair and his peacoat jacket to the point where he attempted to get in the grill of Jurgen Klopp and his puffer coat. Yes, Arteta's staff would attempt to quote-unquote hold him back as his fury boiled over and spilled onto the turf. But folks, while I respect Arteta for... Sticking up for Mr. Takahiro Tomiyasu. It was a bit of handbags at ten paces from Arteta. Now, I will not buy into the theory that Arteta stepping to Klopp fired up his team and led to Arsenal's demise. It's not that easy. These are professional footballers. However, there is no doubting the fact that the flashpoint between Arteta and Klopp further enraged and incited the Anfield crowd. And by extension, Liverpool players picked up on that energy. It lifted them and it can be said that perhaps an advantage was gained from the altercation. Because, folks, after Michael Oliver and his... Cleanly shaven, clean fade, doled out two yellow cards to both Klopp and Arteta. Liverpool began to open the spigot. There was a big chance as Mane would slip in the reds and create a big chance for Mohamed Salah. But Ramsdale would stand tall for Salah's mishit finish. It was another big save from Ramsdale in the 35th minute. But folks, the ducks had been opened. The water had been released. And in the 37th, Morgan play from Liverpool as Mr. Trent Alexander-Arnold would find room and space at the top of the box to unleash a left-footed thunderbolt that Darren Ramsdale was forced to tip over the bar. Another fine save from Ramsdale, who was impeccable in the first 37 minutes of this game. Oh, Ramsdale, my Ramsdale. But folks, in the 39th, the levy would finally break at a very, very disappointing time for this young team. It was the 39th minute of play after Liverpool had been awarded a free kick. 
The balls floated in towards the back post. Ever so intelligently by Trent Alexander-Arnold. And who was it ghosting in? It was the elbow leading, and frankly, folks, one of the Premier League's best players, Sadio Mane, with a free header between Gabriel and Tomiyasu. It was poor marking, it was poor communication. And folks, it sent Jürgen Klopp into ecstasy. came to its conclusion and always there were some big fat whopping takeaways from the first half number number one Nuno 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 Tavares let me say this about Nuno Tavares Getting the start against Liverpool. I like it, folks. I like it. But first, let me be clear. Kairan Tierney, the sleeveless Scott, is the best left back that we have at Arsenal. And I don't think it's even close. Kairan Tierney is the best. And when drawing up the starting 11 for this match versus Liverpool, I envision Kieran Tierney getting the nod ahead of Nuno Tavares, like Jay and so many others. Now, that being said, I freaking love Arteta's decision to start Tavares. It is not, it is not a decision Mikel Arteta would have made last season. It is not, folks. He would have had Hirontini right back into the side. He would have walked in, folks. But I like and respect Mikel Arteta showing faith in a young player who has stepped up when needed. And good on Arteta for making this decision. It says to me that he is growing as a manager. Number two. Let me take a few brief seconds to discuss my octopus teacher, Thomas Party. Our listeners will be well aware that Thomas Party is, in my opinion, the most important player we have at Arsenal Football Club. He is one of the few players at this club that I would deem deserving of the title of world class. Here at AA, we love Thomas Party. He's fantastic. He's brilliant. However, against Liverpool, despite decent numbers, Thomas Party failed to fully impose himself. He did not look fit. 
And folks, we have said this far too often about Thomas Party since he moved to North London from the Wanda Metropolitano. And folks, the next 26 games will go a long, long way in deciding and shaping Thomas Party's legacy at Arsenal as he submits his credentials to be the first true heir to Patrick Vieira. Number three. When it comes to heir parents, we must talk about Sambi 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 Lakonga. Look, was Sambi flawless against Liverpool? No, he was not. Far from it. And did he make mistakes? Yes, he did, folks. Of course he did. It was obvious. Now, that being said, I will say that I thought the young Belgian was very brave in his play against Liverpool. And at times, he took on more responsibility than Thomas Partey. He was asking for, he wanted the ball in challenging spaces against the best counter-press in European football. There is something, there is something about this kid on and off the pitch that is very, very impressive. There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear there's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop children But in the second half, folks Liverpool's class Would come rising and bubbling to the surface as Mikel Arteta's young guns would show their naivete ass. Yes, there was a bad, 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 bad mistake from Nuno Tavares as he gifted possession in his defensive third to Diego Jota. Jota made Dr. Ben Sobel, Benny Blanco, Look like a tool boy, school boy, as the tattooed Ben White flew past the Portuguese with a rash challenge. And frankly, Ramsdale was covered in no better glory, as Jota proved he is the Arsenal killer once again. again. But in the 65th minute, Arsenal's best chance of the match as their ingenuity and technical class in phase one allowed them to build out and break the heavy metal press. A good pass into the speedy Obama Yang saw him slip between Liverpool's defenders and give a great left-footed effort, right-footed effort to the right of Alisson. It was a toenail save from the Brazilian and folks, I don't think this moment is talked about enough. 
Alison made a brilliant save. And had Arsenal scored, it would have been 2-1. to one. It was a great, great save from the Brazilian formerly known as Pornstash. But in the 68th minute, Liverpool kept coming as Trent Alexander-Arnold slipped in Mohamed Salah and after the Egyptian covered ground in the blink of an eye, he played a delightful out-of-the-boot left-footed outside of the boot cross along the unfelt surface to Diego Jota. Jota tried to go against the grain against Ramsdale, who twisted, converted, and did the chubby checker twist. It was a brilliant save from Ramsdale, but a sign of things to come. And folks, in the 74th minute, it was more Alison, as his distribution from his own box would instigate a back-to-front call for Anfield that was admirable, if not painful. Yes, folks, it was Jota's little-headed flick on delightfully waited into the path of Sadio Mane, who then crossed for Mohamed Salah, who would finish with his right foot. It was a bing-bang-pong Liverpool goal that, frankly, folks... All you can do is take your hat off, too. Was it painful? Yes. Do I fucking despise it? Yes. But it was a thing of beauty, and folks, we all love the beautiful game. In the 75th minute, there was a bit of a response from my octopus teacher, Thomas Barty, but it was purely in vain. As Liverpool would kill this game off as Arsenal began to capitulate. It was a goal for Minamino. <laughs> but the build-up, the quicksilver build-up from Liverpool, from Jordan Henderson to look for and find a cutting and creasing Sadio Mane. Well, folks, Mane was at the heart of everything for Liverpool in this one. As was TAA and as was Mohamed Salah. It was the day when Liverpool's class reigned and shone through. As did Klopp's coaching. Yes, the Liverpool project is further along. We cannot overreact. We cannot lose our shit. However, let it be known that Liverpool have better players. And at this moment in history, Jurgen Klopp is the best manager in international club football. Some big whopping takeaways from the second half. Number one. Losing to Liverpool is not a free hit. 
We are Arsenal. We must be competing against every team in this Premier League. That must be our mindset. However, I must admit that salvaging a draw with Crystal Palace at home is to me more troubling than losing by four goals at Anfield. To reiterate, Liverpool have better players and Klopp is the better coach at this moment in history. But Arsenal must beat the Crystal Palaces and the Newcastle Uniteds, the Evertons, the bottom feeders, if they are to truly challenge for European football next year. Our record against those teams will determine the fate of our European destiny in 22-23. Number... <laughs> number two. There was no loan for Gabriel Martinelli Folarin Balogan this fall. And it looked more and more like a poor move by Edu Gaspar and Mikel Arteta. And while attention was surely focused on the outgoings, on bringing in new blood to bolster our ranks, the lack of minutes for Martinelli and Balogan this fall was always going to be problematic given the logjam in attack at Arsenal. I continue to harbor concerns that if Mikel Arteta is banking on Gabriel Martinelli and Fuller and Balogan to get us goals during the AFCON period, well, it could have dramatically negative impact on two of our most promising young attacking talents. With so few first-team minutes under their belts, it won't be a shock if they struggle to come up with the goods in January. And given the bipolar nature of Arsenal world, Things could get ugly rather fast. Number three. Alexander Lacazette's continued selection over Martin Odegaard and by extension Nicolas Pepe must come to an end. While there is no doubting the evidence that Lacazette has provided a spark for this team during the unbeaten run. There is no there, there. Let me share a few troubling numbers from Lacazette's role as our second striker or our number 10. It's a hybrid role. And in 334 minutes, Premier League football this season, Lacazette has generated just four 
Four shots. Four. Lacazette has created seven. Seven chances. And he has completed a poultry 82 passes. One more time, folks. 334 minutes of Premier League football. Lacazette has four shots. He's created seven chances and completed 82 passes. The 30-year-old Lacazette has provided value to the team. He has been a reassuring influence on a very, very young side. But his lack of end product is not sustainable for a team that struggles to score goals. It is time to change how Lacazette is being used. 20 to 30 minutes per match is what is called for. He cannot continue to be a starter for Arsenal if we want European football back at the Emirates next season. And finally, let us make no doubts about it. Arsenal's festive period well and truly begins this Saturday, folks. Yes, it does. This Saturday with the match against Newcastle. With that match, we have nine games, nine matches to play in the next four weeks. And we will find out a lot about this young team of Gunners and manager Mikel Arteta. And let me give a shout out, Tom, to Nicolas Pepe. I have a feeling that during this most festive of periods, bells will be a ringing for Nicolas Pepe. Bells will be ringing The glad, glad news Oh, what a Christmas Do have the blues My baby's gone It's an Arsenal thing podcast Fun, football and conversation I had a friend request this week on social media, right? It it took me back a bit. (laughs) I had to look at it twice. And you've got to be careful these days, haven't you? That it's not a stalker or a mad person or a closet Tottenham fan. Probably a combination of all three. Um, So you, you scroll down to see what they're all about. You try and look up their information and all this sort of stuff. Well, this person, who will remain nameless, had themselves down as a God fearing person and a plumber. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure how linked those two are, uh, but I accept it. And hopefully I'll be eternally blessed with no blockages. <laughs> We've had an email at it's an Arsenal thing for at gmail.com. The excitement was tangible. Who was it from? What was it about? Well, it was Jen and Jen asked, why does Silent Dave not talk? Is it to make him more interesting? Uh, no, he isn't very interesting. 
He's uh, basically a calamity on two legs, but one of the funniest people that I know. But strangely, when I open up the microphone, he becomes about as interesting as a sink full of dirty dishes. We try to record an episode with him speaking, and it's like ironing wallpaper. <laughs> Yet, his contributions are invaluable. And here's a great example. Dave made a devastating discovery. He's got vermin in his kitchen cupboard. Um, there was evidence, you know what I'm saying, the calorific calling card of the humble mouse. Dave does no more. He's straight on the blower to the local pest control outfit. And they send a chat round to survey the scene. And Dave gets the news he didn't expect. Was it mice or rats? Cocoa Pops. <laughs> the droppings were Cocoa Pops. Oh, didn't you check it out? <laughs> How much did that cost you? He's not even saying. Every goal, every disappointment, every good decision and every bad decision. From the first whistle to the final whistle. It's time to welcome tonight's guest in the dugout. Our guest tonight in the dugout is Greg Lansdowne, who's uh, written a, a really, it's, it's a great book, actually. I, I can't wait to see it because it, it's very nostalgic. It's a nostalgic journey. It's uh, about the world of Panini, the stickers, a nostalgic journey through the world of Panini. How are you, Greg? You all right? Yeah, very well. Thanks for having me on. Uh, not a problem at all. Um, Greg, I can't wait to talk to you about the book and Panini in particular, because there's so many memories come back when you talk about uh, the stickers and everything else. But let's talk about you firstly in your career. How did you get started? Well, I'm so old that I've been working in sport for about uh, oh, 25 years now. So I was, uh, started off as a, a researcher, um, worked at Leicester. Leicester University had a football research centre, would you believe? So I worked, I worked there for a couple of years. Uh, then I somehow got a job working on Swedish television, um, providing the the English scores on a Saturday afternoon for a few years. Oh, you were the, you I, the one I, that I wrote, read the scores out? Um, that they would show a game from yeah. England in, in Sweden at three o'clock and uh, I would be on a phone to, to someone in, in Sweden. So this is before the, the internet was only just, just starting. So they, they needed someone in England to uh, to follow uh, teletext and the radio and grandstand and uh, to, to, to feed the scores through and they would be run uh, along the bottom of the uh, of, of the screen. And it, those results were quite important to them because uh, they were very big on betting and uh, they, they had a like a pause uh, sheet every every week and most of the games will be English games so uh, w w watching the game was al almost secondary to to those scores uh, running along the bottom so it's got I was uh, I had quite an important role for them um, uh, then I wrote for a few football websites including uh, Umbro's in-house site for a few years so that at, at that point they were doing England's kit so I got to um, cover a few England games and press conferences, etc. So that that was interesting. Uh, then I worked in cricket, and um, somehow in 2014, uh, I I just I, I rediscovered Panini, and uh, not only did I rediscover it, I, I then wrote a book uh, which was published in 2015. That was then made into an ITV documentary. 
and I've been writing articles about football stickers and, and sports cards ever since, um, even doing some advisory work for, for some of the companies. And, uh, and then finally, here we are this week, uh, my second book on uh, football stickers is, is coming out. And this is a, an officially licensed one with uh, Panini and very image led. Uh, so it's very exciting. It's quite strange to think, isn't it? Because it's a, in my mind, it's a physical thing. The stickers, you know, kids in the playground. Got, I've got that one, you know, swapping them about. Um, but we're in a digital age. How is it still possible to make all these these things move uh, in terms of popularity? It's the 60th birthday this year of uh, Panini. And I think it's great testament to the fact that the really the, the process of collecting and what an album looks like hasn't changed much in 60 years. And, and how many other... Uh, crazes or hobbies hasn't changed greatly. Now, Panini, they they do do uh, digital collectibles. They do have uh, NFTs, which is the big thing now. But their staple remains uh, the the football sticker album or sticker albums in general, covering other uh, other other aspects, not not just sport. But uh, the their their main albums remain the uh, the World Cup, the Euro. And uh, the domestic leagues, they they got the Premier League recently, so they're doing that one as well. But they also do many domestic leagues around the world. And um, I think one of the key factors in its popular in the, the stickers remaining popular is that people like me who grew up in the eighties, who were reliant on our parents to give us uh, enough money to get one or two packets every few days, we can now buy a whole box. Uh, which is something that we, we looked at the box in the news agents in the old days and looked and thought, oh, what, wouldn't it be great one day if I could actually get the whole box? Well, now, now, now we can. So we're, we're fulfilling our, our childhood dreams, really. Uh, as you were saying, there's there's an app. Uh, it was uh, around about 2018, wasn't it, uh, for the World Cup? Um, World Cup fans to yeah, collect and swap do, virtual uh, stickers. Yeah, they they do digital collectibles for uh, all sorts of albums now. So they, they they do it for the Premier League pods. They 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 did it for the last World Cup. They did it for the Euros. They they've got uh, all sorts of digital collections now. And and as I say, NFTs are the are with with blockchain is this the next big thing. Uh, Panini are not the only company who are doing it, but uh, they are they are one of them. And and those um, cards that. Uh, Digital crypto cards are now exchanging hands for sometimes hundreds of thousands of pounds. Wow. How are the physical sales holding up for Panini? Because, you know, there's, there's so much, isn't it, that kids are into. But it's, it's great to hear that it's still solid and it's doing so well. Yeah, well, um, it's it really uh, kicked off again Um went back to the heyday for Germany 2006. That that was when a lot of uh, nostalgic collectors got back into it. And, and ever since then, Panini have, have gone into more and more territories. They're, they're, in, in 2006, they, they didn't really have a presence in uh, in North America. Now they're the, uh, the, 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 the biggest... Uh, collectibles brand in in north america as as we speak at, at this point they they they're always going into into new territories um uh, asia is the is, is another area now where they weren't that big 
probably 10 years ago, but that's they're, they're developing there. And um, and UK is a, is a staple. Um, although Panini didn't have the Premier League album or the, and the cards as well, for uh, they only got that in 2019. They that they've always had the the World Cups and they've always had the Euros and, and now they've got the, uh, the the Premier League as well. They they are as big now, arguably in, in the UK as as they were in the uh, in in the, the heyday in the eighties. Not necessarily with kids, but in in the eighties it was just uh, a pursuit for children. Whereas now there's a, a lot more adults who are into it. Because the history of stickers and cards goes back to the 1800s, doesn't it? I remember uh, an uncle of mine, he had um, a sort of card collection of cricketers. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I think he got them out of fags or something like that. I'm not really yeah. sure. But, uh, yes, yeah, I mean, let's talk about the book now. Um, where on earth do you start with something of that scope? 60 years worth of history, um, all the back catalogues and everything else. How, how do you start with that? Exactly. Where where do you start? So I think what what I've done is probably a template for many other such Panini books to to follow. So this one covers all the World Cup albums, covers all the Euro albums. But I think really the what's going to grip a lot of people is that it covers all the classic Panini UK domestic albums from Football seventy eight all the way through to Football ninety three. Um, and any any football fan growing up in the eighties, it's very unusual if, uh, if 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 you if you're a football fan growing up in the eighties and you didn't collect at least one Panini sticker album, then then you were certainly in the in the minority. So there's there's going to be a lot of uh, nostalgia for those looking at the uh, the haircuts and the moustaches and, uh, and the the players who are now managers. And um, but as you say. Uh, Panini is their 60th birthday, so you can't cover everything because they've done domestic albums in Italy for 60 years. Um, Spain, they just celebrated 50th birthday there. Belgium, 50 years. So, so each of those nations has been covered in special sections, but all being well, there will be a spanish version there will be a french version to to come so also covering the world cup the euros but replacing what i've done for the uk with 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 their own uh domestic section i suppose you had full access to all the panini libraries and all that sort of thing did you as well uh yes uh but because we did the book in lockdown uh, it, unfortunately, I, I was due to go to Modena in Italy, where the uh, where the offices are, and uh, go through their archive. But unfortunately, because we were in lockdown, it was made a lot harder. So uh, we we had access to all the World Cup newer albums, but in in terms of the UK domestic albums, it, we we actually had a couple of photo shoots using my my old albums. Fortunately, I collected them all, um, and that the, this. Any stickers that we needed that I didn't have, I just had. To, I just uh, did a bit of shopping on eBay, and uh, and, and covered cover them off that way. So um, my um, my my football stickers have probably never had such great attention. We, we it, these really were proper photo shoots with uh, with with the backdrops, the uh, all, all the lighting, and uh, supermodels have probably barely been uh, treated with with, with, with <laughs> such affection. Um, in the book, there's over 2,000 stickers, isn't there? 
So it's yeah, a visual other, feast yeah. as well as information. Yeah, yeah. Two, two thousand images. So that that also covers all the all the album covers. Uh, some uh, never before seen images of uh, of the Panini factory and the Panini family. Um, but yeah, as you say, mainly it is about the uh, the stickers. So each UK domestic album has six pages of text and pictures. Every World Cup album has four pages. Every Euro has two pages, and there's even uh, uh, all, all the all the women's albums are covered, and uh, there's special sections for for other countries as well. And as I say, the moustaches get a couple of pages. The haircuts, like Alan Sunderland, get a couple the side of sideburns, the quiffs, and so on. Yeah. The bad yeah. haircuts. Yeah. Um, exactly. I understand that you came across Panini uh, because your your brother was a professional footballer for West Ham, wasn't he? Uh, and you started with uh, Panini 79. Yeah, Football 79. So he uh, he collected, not Panini, uh, F- FKS, which was the big... Uh, that the big album for for much of the seventies, he, he he collected those before me, and then uh, then he decided the best way to get me into football as a five year old was to uh, to get the Panini sticker album. So in those days, you'd buy Shoot magazine in January, where you got three album, uh, three packet of stickers, and then you're off. Uh, fortunately, due to his generosity, we uh, I think there's about uh, well over I think there was almost 600 stickers in that album um, and we got within one of them of, of finishing so it just shows how generous he must have been in terms of uh, topping me up because and because we wouldn't have been doing many swaps in those days uh, because as a five-year-old I don't think I would have had many uh, what well, only just started school really so I wouldn't have had many people to swap with so uh, so yeah he, he must have spent quite a bit of money. That's my overriding memory is sort of uh, all all you and your friends out in a huddle in the school playground, you know, sort of getting out all your stickers and your cards or whatever and having a good old swap round. When you get that elusive one that you wanted, the excitement was really tangible. You know, you were absolutely made up. No, I mean, that was, uh, I think probably the, although you can swap online now on Twitter and uh, Facebook and Instagram and all, all over, you you can't recapture uh, the, the the playground swapping which we would do before school, during breaks, at lunchtime, after school, and and it, it would make your day if you'd done a good swap. Uh, and and that that went on for months. And and I think it was one of the fo- one of the few football related uh, things that, that brought everyone together because obviously people had their team rivalries, but when it was Panini stickers, everyone was in it together. Do you find, or have you heard stories of obsessive collectors, people who would actually sort of climb over you to get to a sticker? Uh, there, there was always, uh, well, for, for a start, there was always one person in my class who, even before we'd, well, we, we probably just started, we've got one or two packets, so we weren't in the market for swapping yet, and, and he came in about, with a wadge of about 200 swaps uh, because his, uh, one of his parents had bought him a, a whole box so, and I think a lot of schools had had people like like that. Uh, one one person who who always seemed more advanced in terms of uh, where they were where they were in their album, and uh, there there are also some very hard nosed negotiators who uh, who knew people's weak spots. They they knew what people want, and they would drive hard bargains to to for, for you to enable you to get that sticker that you wanted. 
I suppose Panini's big break was uh, when it came to the partnership between them and FIFA in the 1970 World Cup. That became part of the World Cup experience. And it's still ongoing today, isn't it? It's a very strong market for them. Yeah, I mean, um, although it was a very successful album in in Italy, their first World Cup album, Mexico 70, uh, the, the distribution uh, wasn't very, very wide. Uh, and so although they, they did uh, sell it in, in the UK, it wasn't readily available. Uh, so, which is what makes it very rare now and why it goes for thousands of pounds and why individual stickers can, can almost go for a thousand pounds as a, from that album as well, uh, stickers and cards. In 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 Mexico 70, FKS uh, was the biggest brand in the UK. So you, you will see far more FKS Mexico 70 albums than, than you will the the, uh, the the Panini one. So it, in terms of the UK, it was only really uh, the Argentina 1978 Panini sticker album where uh, where it was a, a huge seller. Even uh, even the, the the Munich '74 album was uh, was just just bubbling under, but uh, from from '78 they they just had their first UK domestic album, and uh, Panini never looked back from that point. I think it's um, it's something that obviously you've got the memories of childhood and all that sort of thing growing up, and it, it was just an innocent kind of thing, wasn't it? But now it's it's really big money involved. A spokesman from AAH Sports said football stickers are no longer just a hobby. They're a way for some people to make some serious money. And on the back of that, I've just got a little uh, bit of information here. Uh, a Panini sticker uh, that was signed by Pele sold for £10,450. I mean, it's it's a big, big collectible. Do they do like, you know, you've got uh, for comics, you've got Comic-Con. Have you got some sort of venues that, uh, you know, collectors can go to? Well, that uh, that ten thousand uh, pound Pele sticker is just a drop in the ocean. Uh, a, a Diego Maradona sticker, his first Panini sticker, went for five hundred fifty five thousand dollars at an auction in in America uh, in April May. And uh, it in in terms of, uh, I bet they had security guards having to muscle in with this like briefcase and inside just this humble sticker. Well, because. Bec- <laughs> Because it was an American auction, that that's actually not unusual for for America. So, it, 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 in America, sports cards have been really hugely about the investment for decades. So, there are many cards in America for uh, baseball and uh, bas- basketball and uh, American football that re- regularly now go for millions of dollars. Uh, never mind five hundred fifty-five thousand dollars. So I think I think the record at the moment is up to about five million for a single baseball card. Um, wow. And 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 as I say, that's not uh, that that has been going on for for, for decades. So it, it's about uh, opening packets of cards and trying to get that rare card that could potentially earn you hundreds or thousands or or even more. And uh, and that is their pursuit, and and it, it's it's now coming uh, to, to the UK. You you asked about um, car, uh, cons, comic con, and in 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 America there are numerous uh, card fairs, collectors fairs, um, often several uh, a, a, a weekend, 
and there there is one main one called the national which goes on for four or five days every year they 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 just started in in the uk so there, there's been one in i think the midlands and one they, they call it the london uh sports car fair but it's actually in surrey um and uh they're they're doing another one next year so i, I it's just it's we're, we're we're very slowly catching up uh in that respect uh not not that i would want the investment side to be the be all and end all when, when it comes to the way we collect over here and, and i I don't think it ever will be uh, that you will still get a hardcore of collectors who are focused on purely trying to fill their Panini album and actually sticking the stickers in rather than keeping them loose and housing them in, in penny sleeves just in case they might be worth some, some money in, in the future. You, you still have people who just want to purely collect the albums. There's a, there's a romance to collecting, isn't it? I, I go back as well to the SO coins where you used to get uh, the little coins every time you bought a couple of gallons of petrol or yeah. whatever. So there's that genuine romance. And that's a very British yeah. thing. Do you think it's um, th- this whole business has been elevated since the introduction of the Premier League? Suddenly everything's very, very collectible again, isn't it, in terms of football? No, I d- yeah, I mean, it, the, the first book I wrote on uh, football stickers called Stuck on You, be- before I wrote it, I didn't really know about the the business side of it. So I interviewed people who'd worked for Panini in the eighties. They then set up a rival company called Merlin who got the contract for the, the, the premier league when, when that was, was first dished out. And, uh, it, it, it was, uh, it was dog eat dog. I mean, for, for most of the eighties Panini would uh, really, they'd wiped out all the competition. So they, they had a clear playing field, but eventually other brands, started to muscle in and uh, and that's when uh, that's when it started to get a bit messy a little bit blurred and and, and now the the two biggest brands are panini and tops but uh, another company uh, which specializes in um, in merchandise fanatics uh, they've now bought the licenses for um, base i think all oh, yeah baseball basketball and american football so uh, from from a, in about two or three years' time, they will have the licenses for all of those made American sports. Uh, so no company can ever rest rest on their on their laurels. Contracts are always changing hands. And as I say, Panini only got the Premier League license in 2019 for the first time. Uh, they just last week they they re- renewed it for a, for a further run, but uh, that that's never taken for granted. They they always have to to prove themselves each time, put put in new bids, and and as I say, now that there's a new company that's uh, that's taking notice of uh, how lucrative the collectibles market is, it's uh, it's going to be even tougher uh, for for Panini to to stay at, at their level. But if, if anyone can, Panini can. I was just going to say, because the, the names you mentioned there, Merlin and Panini, not so much tops. I, I suddenly remembered it when you said it, but they didn't stand out in my mind. So that's evidence how, how powerful that brand is sort of all these years on. The book's coming out. When's it coming out? Thursday, uh, November 25th. So we're nearly there. OK. And uh, what sort of price are we talking? Uh, 
we are talking at fourteen ninety nine, but uh, on Amazon, uh, it, it it's been anything from between fourteen ninety nine and twelve ninety nine. So if you if you get in uh, at the best time, you might might get it for that. But I would uh, I would argue it's very good value at fourteen ninety nine. It's um, hardback. Uh, I, I I had a pre published pre pre publishing copy sent to me uh, a couple of months ago, and um, I'm quite a perfectionist, so. If I'd not been happy with it, although I might not have mentioned it today because I want to promote the book, in my in my in my, in my mind, I would I would have been honest with myself. But uh, I was delighted with uh, with 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 what what they'd gone. Fantastic! How many pages uh, is but, it? Uh, uh, it's two hundred and forty, uh, and I think I think one of the things that, as I say, it's full color, two thousand images, and and even the uh, even the the football stickers part on the front cover looks like silver shiny stickers that you used to get back in the day and, and still do so as i say they it's um i've, I've seen plenty of books at 14.99 that are, that are paperback so the the job that they've done bloomsbury i'm uh, i'm delighted with and i think i think all all people who buy it will uh will, will happily have that on their shelf well it's been brilliant so i must just ask you one thing how long did it take from start to finish it took shorter than it should have done uh it in, in terms of writing to Bloomsbury and and the book coming out, it took four years uh, due to negotiations and uh, a pandemic. But in terms of when I started writing the book, I started writing it in and collating all the stickers. That was January 2021, and it was finished in April 2021. So uh, not not long at all, especially when you've got three young kids and uh, I was homeschooling in January and February. So uh, same, yeah. Let's just say I was uh, I was un- under pressure, but uh, made it and uh, and uh, I'm I'm happy with the the outcome. Probably the the writing was I would say the the easier part than than the stickers because you as you say sixty years try try covering all of that, even with just the UK domestic the World Cup the Euros, you can't put the full albums in. So what what stickers do you go with? And uh, I'm sure people will say, oh, there's too many of this club, not enough of that club. Why is this player in this many times? Why is this player not not in? But but that's just like Panini stickers in the old days. There are always some stickers you've got recurring and there were some that you could never get. So well, I hope uh, you've got some uh, like Arsenal that. players in there, Greg. Well, I, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to divulge my 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 bias. But let's, let's just let's, let's just say let's just say Arsenal supporters won't won't be disappointed. Right. Okay. That's good enough for me. I just want to squeeze <laughs> yeah. the pips. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but I also want to stress that um, supporters of other teams won't be won't be disappointed either. Um, I, I have tried to get a good scope. From from football seventy eight to ninety three, there were probably about probably about forty forty five teams that were in the in the top flight for at least one season. Um, so I think I've managed to get them all in, um, and and them all in multiple times, um, especially the ones that are in there regularly. So so there'll be plenty of Coventry, plenty of Ipswich, uh, which people might consider unfashionable now but well even Nottingham Forest people will consider unfashionable now but from, from 78 to 93 they were they were staples so uh, so they that they are rightly in there numerous times so yeah there's uh, 
there's plenty for every, for everyone, but um, I've got my favourite players, so I, I I did my best to make sure most of them are in. Not not all of them. So I I didn't manage to get um, Tony Woodcock in, who I would have liked to have got in. But uh, in terms of most of the other big Arsenal names from from seventy eight to ninety three, I think they're all pretty much in. Greg, I wish you the very best of luck. I can't wait to get my hands on this book. It's uh, it's driving me mad because I'm when I knew I was going to get to speak to you, there was just all these memories coming through. And I was like looking at pictures of uh, Chopper Harris and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So uh, Alan Ball, really looking forward to actually getting my hands on it and flicking through. Um, nostalgia. Please go out and buy this book. Uh, Greg, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an Arsenal thing podcast. Fun, football and conversation. Myself and Dave hopped onto the internet to bone up on Liverpool. And aside from the usual fascinating facts, we came across a desperately patronising but funny English lesson on the Scouse language. Listen to this. So, who are we meeting today? This is Rebecca. Rebecca is from Liverpool. That means she is a Scouser. Hello, Rebecca. All right, babe. People from Liverpool are very friendly and down to earth. But if you find yourself in a conversation with a Scouser, you might find that you're a little bit confused because they use some words that we don't normally use in standard British English. We're going to go through some of the common ones with you now. Busies. Police. Look out, it's the busies. Look out, it's the police. Kecks. Trousers. I bought some new kecks. I bought some new trousers. Made up. Really happy. Oh, I'm made up with that. Oh, I'm really happy with that. Cob on. Bad mood. Have you got a cob on? Am I in a bad mood? No. Bevy. Drink or beverage? Eh, uh, fancy a bevy? Do I fancy a drink? Yeah. Scran. Food. He's got a cob on because he wants some scran. He's in a bad mood because he wants some food. Bifters. Cigarettes. I'm just going to the offy to buy some bifters. I'm just going to the off licence to buy some cigarettes. Gegging in. Being nosy. Eee, are you gegging in? Hey, are you being nosy? Not me. So there's a small selection of some of the words you would typically hear from a scouser. From Nepal to North London, from Delhi to Dagenham, from the terraces to the armchair, it's an Arsenal Thing podcast. Football's in our DNA. On the 29th of November 2019, following a series of poor results and a winless run of seven games, Unai Emery was sacked by Arsenal. His final game in charge was a 2-1 home defeat to Eintracht Frankfurt in the Europa League. He was replaced, obviously, by Freddie Lundberg. We love you, Freddie, because you got no hair. And uh, then he was replaced by Spanish Michael. In honour of our former head coach, we bring you a song that was sent to us by Charlie Moss, or Mossy, as he prefers to be known. Good evening. Good evening. When get out, you was treasoning. Just for that, they should leave him in. Let man bring the whole season in. But that Pepe ain't seasoning. 
can't say you didn't have peas. You thought Shaka was a top boy, Kai came and I said he had keys. Hands, hands up if you manage PSG and you lost the league. One man league and you lost it, but you still had man, you man mocked it. He always wins the Europa, win that and we make UCL. Yeah, you went to the final, in that he smid UCL. Said, said sending shots at Wenger, putting out clips of training. To the tall man crying in the ball to a crowded box, that needs explaining. Do WSL this time Arsenal girls take on Spurs how did they get on let's drop in on the commentary but she has the ball now able to turn onto that left foot meter mark and it's another fine save by Corpola Neville again with the challenge free kick whipped in by Mead and did it cross the line in the in the top corner but they're near crossing the line I think but they're so fortunate the time with a free kick but the ref didn't see that one now graham making the chase and graham almost in and ruben moy with a last ditch challenge and they're just a little nod on by williams which she is so good at as well using her body getting which didn't come off here is mccabe miedemar still miedemar twisting and turning can she find the finish not this time blocked by zadorski marnham's curler of three added minutes little me <laughs> challenged by the referee there there's an apology from Amy Fern Maritz Miedemar's shot blocked by Bartrip Ruben Moy McCabe the cross in from Catley almost finding Mead it does and once again Corpola is immense for Tottenham. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, really good positioning by Wubenoy. And the game becoming very stretched. Maisie dribble from McCabe. 
Yeah, and this will play into Arsenal's hands, certainly. Niedermark. Checking beyond Neville. And it's still Niedermark. She knows straight away, puts her hands on her head, did all the hard work and made the keeper work. Just little things like that, just build up. But again, there, got to stay on your feet. She's so good at that, fainting and pulling it. She can do... Need. Hold on to Miedemar, is this the moment? Now Miedemar, back onto the left foot. And the shot in the end from Marnham. Simon again. And the cross is deep. It finds Graham, it's blocked by Zinsberger. And Williams is denied. And then she scores! Rachel Williams for Tottenham. Williams is in the right place at the right time. But it just looked like Ruben Moy just could have cleared that. There, just gets it caught under her feet. Can't really swing it. The end of it. Here is Zadorski. Good save by Zinsberger. And then Neville should have made it 2-0. They have been sweeping aside on previous occasions. But now Little with the break into the penalty area. And once again, it is magnificent defending. Molly Arsenal and they, you know, they need to find a way out of it. Oh, it was almost a second goal. But you could just see they're just winning the ball, aren't they? They're trying things that, you know, the confidence level. Now, can link up with Graham. Ayan, and she's got space. Williams waits in the centre, but the cross is cut out by Zinsberger. Corners delivered deep once again. Looking for Miedemar! Vivian Miedemar rescues Arsenal in added time. Is the ball, I think Neville just gets caught under it, jumps and Zdorsky can't she doesn't able, she's not at body position, just gets under Miedemar. She's trying to stop her rather than thinking about trying to get up and jump herself. And it's just so close, good strength on it. Now it's back towards Nobbs. Another header this time from Williamson is over the top. And that is it. An incredible North London derby. Arsenal dropped their first points of the season. But Tottenham were denied. Tottenham Hotspur won. Arsenal won. It's time to enter the gun room for a natter. Hello and welcome to the gun room. With me as always is Jay and we're going to talk about uh, Liverpool and so forth and such with and all that sort of thing. OK, Jay, how are you? Yeah, good, mate. Thanks. How are you, mate? You all right? Yeah, not too bad. If you sleep this night, that's what you have with children, isn't it? <laughs> the joys of parenthood. <laughs> um, getting on to the game. OK, it was a 4-0 bashing at Anfield. Uh, but for yeah. 20, 25, maybe 30 minutes, we were in it yeah. defensively. Mm-hmm. But we just didn't have anything. To, we didn't create much, did we? And attack was nominal. Uh, yeah. um, was it a fairly predictable result in your mind, 4-0? Well, I think most of us, if not all of us, were um, at best. We were probably hoping for a draw. With with Liverpool having been beaten by West Ham in the previous game, uh, I think most of us also expected Liverpool to to sort of want to put right that defeat. Um, and it was unfortunate, I think, that we were playing Liverpool after they'd lost their sort of unbeaten run. I suppose we were the first team to play them, and 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 like you said, it was it was a bit toothless up front. 
You know, I always worry, with, I've said it a few times, you know, Aubameyang, when he comes up against the more physical type of defender, you know, I mean, there's no disgrace being marked out the game by somebody like Van Dijk, but I think he more often than not struggles against the more physical central defender. And yeah, like you said, for the first half an hour, it was all right without really causing them too much problems. We were we were containing them, weren't we? Ramsdale made a few good saves, um, but we never really looked like scoring did we I can't really think of a period of the game where we looked like we were applying any real pressure it got to a stage I thought if we're going to score it's either going to be a a bit of a fluke uh they're going to have an unforced error or it's going to be a free kick or um or a corner yeah it was that bad from open play um, we looked a little bit scared, didn't we? Uh, we looked, they were swarming over us. They were swarming round us. As soon as that goal went in, it was like the inferiority complex like set in. And uh, and I think the players kind of knew it was going to be a damage limitation. Uh, you know, I, I still thought we did okay in that first in that first half. Um, it, I mean, the first goal, you know, the, the Mane header, I thought it was such a bad goal to concede. You know, we'd managed to keep them out. Uh, Liverpool had played some nice um, quick passing in and around the box. And Ramsdale had made a couple of good saves uh, from from Salah. He made a good save and um, a few other saves. And I just thought it was such a such a poor goal to concede. You know, towards the end of the half, Mane, smallest player on the pitch practically. And he wins a header and pops it in the bottom corner. Um, and I just think, get to half time, you never know. We kept them quiet. You know, the stadium was quiet really up until there was the that you know the well publicised bust up between Arteta and Klopp. Oh, we'll get to that in a minute. Yes, yeah. that was a that was a weird one, but we'll we'll get to that in a sec. What were your thoughts on Manny's goal? You know, the first goal. It really annoyed me. Really, yeah. really annoyed I've me. I've got notes here, and it says um, it was a collective failure. Basically, uh, Tavares uh, or Tavares, whatever yeah. one you want to use, um, party. My wife's getting really annoyed because I can't seem to sort out which one I'm going to call him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, party, White, Gabriel and Tommy Asu. Although Tommy Asu was slightly behind, so he wasn't yeah. as culpable as the ones in the middle and they just seemed to lose trace of it. Yeah, it was great, great delivery. And and and, and like you said, you, and you just touched on it, um, the, the, the zonal marking, you know, sometimes can get, get a bit... <laughs> Get a bit confusing, maybe, to some of the players, but in the, in the sort of the level that I've played at, um, Mane would have been marked by Tommy Asu for the majority of the game, so Tommy Asu should win the header. But it was just really frustrating. I watched it again earlier, and uh, such a such a poor goal to concede. Uh, and then, and and obviously, you're at Anfield. You've managed to keep them quiet for. You know, the stadium quiet, the fans quiet, them quiet in general. And we've done okay. And to concede such a goal like that was oh, just gut-wrenching, really. So disappointing. I've got quite a few things that are on my mind. I mean, we want to keep it light and positive. Uh, yeah. We knew we were coming up against one of the world's top teams. And their game is high press. And they've, they've got six years behind them of experience, yeah. of gelling. He's built this team. And it's almost like take one piece out, put another piece in. Don't even notice the seam, do you? So yeah. we have to look at it objectively and kind of think we're not at that level, you know. We're no, just not. No, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I was watching it, uh, and as the game went on, and as it as it sort of uh, the game ran away from us, I still, I was still, I was still positive, you know. And I suppose that's a sign of of the good work that Arteta and 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 the team have have done. Um, you know, I was still even at full time still positive. I do think there is an inferiority complex still. I do think these players, I think they they are a work in progress and they know they're a work in progress. 
So when it comes in, you know, ultimately in these big games, in these well games against the better teams, um, I think they still lack lack a bit of quality and they lack a bit of that leadership. But that will come right as the season goes on and and this team builds. And it's all about just you know taking it one game at a time, like we said at the start of the season. And um, it has to be has to be positive, doesn't it? We can't dwell too long on on a defeat to Liverpool because. They're, they're a great side, like you said. They're, they're probably you could put them top three in the world, couldn't you? They're, they're, they're a great side, you know, no, no doubt about it. Um, I just, um, I was just a bit flummoxed with our approach. You think we should have actually swapped them round for uh, this match? You think we should have had Tierney in instead of Tavares, mm. Odegaard for mm-hmm. Lacazette, and Maitland Niles maybe yeah. for Lukonga? Um, definitely the first two. Uh, I thought Tierney was, you know, he's got the uh, experience um, played in, in against Liverpool before. I can see why Tavares kept his place. He's been playing well, but I'd have definitely gone for Tierney. Um, I said in my pre-match that I was, I wanted to, I wanted to see Odegaard just because we were going to obviously we're going to have far less, or we would have had far less um, possession. That's what he was bought for, right? He was bought for his technical ability and his passing quality. Um, and yeah, uh, Maitland Niles. I mean, he played well. He was my man of the match against Watford. So it's easy in hindsight, isn't it? You know, Partey was very poor. I thought again, he was, he was, he was very, very poor against Liverpool. Um, so then you could obviously argue that it was potentially a mistake to bring him back. But then again, we've said it many times that he's <laughs> he's our best midfielder. So. A, I thought he'd have a stormer. I thought he was being saved. He was he was in reserve and they were going to get him in and he was going to blitz. But as you say, I mean, looking at the team, there, there was no one that really, apart from Ramsdale, that came out with any glory in this. The possession no. was terrible. Without the ball and with the ball, they were awful. And they just didn't close down. Uh, some, I reckon one of those goals was valid and I reckon the other three were kind of preventable if we were organised and a bit stronger mentally. Um, yeah, and that one in the last 15 minutes, uh, that's the 15 minute syndrome that I keep banging on about. It's mm-hmm. like we just fall apart. But mm-hmm. another thing, I don't know whether you noticed it, was the shape looked really elastic uh, instead mm-hmm. of, I think it was against Leicester where we had like these defined lines of players. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. uh, it kind of expanded and got yeah. all over the place. You had the backs moving into the midfield, the midfield going too far down or uh, overlapping the backs. And it was a real proper mess. Yeah. I think, you, 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 I mean, you, you, I think you nailed it. We, mentally, we, we sort of fell apart as the game went on. It, we, as soon as the goal started to go in, uh, we, we didn't, but that's where you need, that's where you need um, leaders. You know, that's where you need these players, your your Ben Whites and your, your Gabriels and Thomas Parties to stand up and keep everybody organised. And ultimately, they didn't do that. And we haven't got too many of those. And again, you know what? I'm, I'm not getting carried away. I've seen, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it as well on social media. A lot of people, as soon as we slip up, everybody just jumps on the whole, the process isn't working or Arteta needs to go or whatever. Everything needs changing. Well, come on, let's just... We need some perspective, right? This is a Liverpool. This is a great side. And uh, let's just... I mean, as well, another thing with these type of games, I always... With, with it, we're such a young team at the moment. And I just wonder if we'd have played Liverpool, say, at 12.30 on a Saturday. I just wonder if, instead of the 5.30 evening kickoff, atmosphere has obviously been built. I just wonder how different it would be. You know, you touched on that Leicester game. That was an earlier kickoff. The atmosphere was still was still good inside the King Power. Leicester is still a strong side, obviously not quite up to the level of Liverpool, but the time of the match, especially, you know, from, from 
uh, for, for us, you know, the Arsenal being such a young team, I just wonder how much of a difference it makes playing at those times, you know, how that, you know, even just a few hours makes such a difference, I think, you know. Plays into well, George Graham time. said back in 89, that was one of the keys, was get there uh, late, have as little time as possible in there, then get the hell out. I mean, you know, yeah. that, that would kind of bear that out. And I absolutely get what you mean, because those mm-hmm. are young players. If they've been experienced players... It would mm-hmm. be slightly different, but they've had a lot of time to think, think about yeah. themselves, what they're going to do, their performance. Mm-hmm. And Arteta's probably in their ear before they go out. And, uh, yeah, I, I've got a feeling it may have had some bearing. We'll, we'll not ever know, really. But, um, mm-hmm. right, there was a lot made of this touchline handbags, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah. But I, I quite enjoyed it, really, because... Yeah. Um, yeah. Nice to see some passion out of a manager rather yeah. than Wenger's sort of, you know, two-fisted in the air, very slow mm-hmm. and like an old pensioner um, mm-hmm. getting a pie from the van. Yeah. It was nice to see that Arteta was was that engaged. But, I mean, there was a theory going on on social media and the press outlets saying that that's the point where Liverpool started mm-hmm. to go through the gears. I, I Listen, you're playing at Anfield what yeah. greater incentive the Liverpool need with that crowd? They may have been a bit quiet, but I don't think mm. that spat had any bearing on the result. We were going to get that anyway. Yeah, well, again, if we'd have got to half-time um, at nil-nil, you never know, could have been could have been different. So I know some people that were at the game and they said the atmosphere was was genuinely awful. You know, this whole this whole idea, and I'm sure it is on certain occasions, Anfield is, is a great place to play football, but it was so evident how, quite, uh, you know, how silent it was. And um, I, I was the same as you, when it, going back to the actual um, incident. <laughs> you want to see your manager do that, don't you? You want to see him react like that. You, you want to see him stick up for the players. Part of it, I think also, was it was last season that Mane basically smacked Tierney in the face and managed to stay on the pitch. And this time it was Tommy Asu. And I think it was, there was a bit of that, bit of last, you know, a bit of last season. Um, and, and, and Klopp, you know, he, he, he infuriates me sometimes because he's, you know, he's seen as this, this media darling in it, but he's the one running down. He's the one just doing the same as Arteta with his bloody bright white gnashes and, you know, he's gurning everywhere. And, you know, like... They he's are just, some teeth. He's got a few extras in there, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. What's the standard uh, set of teeth? Thirty-six yeah. or something, isn't it? He's got about forty-four. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not a team. Yeah. Anyway, we digress. But uh, right, let's. Uh, we've dealt with. Uh, I just want to go back because I don't feel I've tipped it out, and this is my therapy mm. session with you uh, mm. and yours with me. Um, yeah. We weren't pressing them back. We weren't forcing the game, were we? We weren't closing yeah. down, losing our shape. Mm. Christ, we couldn't put two passes together. It no. was that part of it was really frustrating. And I felt we kind of regressed. Uh, I can't remember what game it was, probably the um, the Brighton game where we hmm. just we just didn't see him at the races. Yeah, I mean, we struggle. We struggle to deal with the high press. There's no doubt about that. And obviously every team up, that we come up against in the league, they're going to try that. But obviously there are, di- there are different levels of quality that we're coming up against. It's no coincidence that against against City and Liverpool, we get an absolute battering and they press us, they press us into mistakes. And and, and because we're such a young and inexperienced team, uh, we're going to make those mistakes. Every team try it, you know, Watford tried it um, and I'm sure Newcastle will try it on uh, in, in our next game. But uh, it's, it's all about different level, 
the ability to, to press into a mistake. We are obviously, we try to do that. Aubameyang has tried it this season, hasn't he? He's, we've, I've seen more pressing from him this season than I've seen, I think, from anyone in the team. Um, but again, it's our ability to do that. And we're not quite up to the level of, of, of City or, or, or Liverpool. Um, and what it also impressed it. me was the pace, the pace that they played at and the variety, you know, down the left, down the right, yeah, yeah. Uh, through the middle. I mean, it was right the way across the pitch. It wasn't sometimes this season we've been a bit left or a bit right. And only when Odegaard was with us last season, we started kind of playing uh, both sides and the middle. Uh, yeah. we, I, I felt we just lost that in this game. I mean, we were lucky if we got over the halfway line at points. Yeah, I mean, I mean they, they Liverpool, they make you look a lot worse than you are. I yeah. think we need we need some real we need some perspective here. They made us look really poor. They played very well. They pressed us into the mistakes and they made us play badly and that is a sign of a really good side. There's no doubt about that. That's what the, that's what the uh that's what the invincibles used to do. That's what the great Man United teams used to do. That's what you know, ultimately that's what um Jose Mourinho's Chelsea did. They were such a defensive, pragmatic team, but they would still press you and force you into mistakes and capitalize on it. And that's what these, that's what these good teams do. Uh, luckily, there's only a couple of them, and I don't think this season. Uh, I do still believe, and I do have faith in Arteta, and I still do believe that these kind of results won't happen that often. Let's let's take out the first game of the season, missing a lot, you know, so many players through COVID and whatever. Yeah, we've we've lost to Chelsea. Liverpool and City, you know, they're going to finish top three. Um, and they and ultimately they they are better than us. Uh, and they do force you into those mistakes. But like I said, like 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 you said, we um Anfield, we it wasn't great to watch, but again, you still got to try and remain positive, right? Well, the thing is, it, I, let's have a look at his tactics here. It was like resist, resist, uh, you know, try and uh keep them at bay and maybe counter-attack. Maybe that was the the thing. Yeah. But uh, we just we just couldn't get that ball, uh, and and they're so good at what they do. There yeah. are uh, there are a couple of let's not say they're a level ahead. They're about three or four levels, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Uh, they are yeah, playing they're... like Wenger's invincibles. They're That's where side. we're at. They're very good, and they, and they had players missing as well, didn't they? And uh, you know you got Oxley Chamberlain who hasn't played you know hardly any minutes this season he came in and did really well you know Simicass there on the left at left back he you know he can come in and do a great job and they've got a great squad and, and, and whatever you say about Klopp he's a top manager isn't he and, and he's he's tactically brilliant and and um although I don't think Arsenal are that difficult to play against at the minute I think we've got plan a which is to start well force the issue get a goal and then hopefully get another one I don't know how many other plans we have you know I think it <laughs> If that doesn't work, I think there's only a couple of teams that can stop us doing that, you know, um, and Liverpool are definitely one of them. Uh, let's, let's talk about that second goal, because that was, uh, yeah. that's been on social media, left, right and centre, yeah. and Tavares has really been slaughtered for the mistake. Um, I can see where people are coming from, but he's a young lad. He's going to make those sort of mistakes. And unfortunately, he made that at a crucial time in the second half. So mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of symptomatic of Arsenal's poor passing, wasn't it? And ball retention. Got no mm-hmm. arguments with that goal. But what you have to say is Jota, the way he took that, different level, I mean, wasn't it? it? Well, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if T- Tavares had a, um, if there was a call, if somebody called, because it was such a glaring mistake. It was like he had a call from somewhere. 
to release the ball inside and he just obviously didn't execute it very well. It just seemed a really weird because he won the ball, hadn't he? And he, he was dribbling out and then it, it almost seemed like he had a call from somebody. But yeah, he may, he may not have had, but um, yeah, it was a bad mistake. But um, yeah, Jota finished it. Well. After that, for me, he kind of, uh, he lost his momentum. He was kind of thinking about it too much and that was probably yeah. the time to hook him. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, 100%. Uh, the third goal uh, saw Arsenal's defence, which was kind of uh, the halfway line, wasn't it? Just just inside its own halfway line. And then it took one yeah. header from Jota yeah. to release Mane and yeah. across to Salah. And Salah did the rest. I mean, that yeah. was a really terrible... We were so far up, we had no way to come back from that. That was ridiculous. No, no. And I mean, that's again, our heads had gone by then, hadn't they? Yeah, yeah. You, know, you only have to watch that goal. Yeah, the the uh, but and that's where you do need leaders, and that's where Arteta does need to stand up and say, uh, you know, we, we can't just fold up, we can't just because we still don't have to lose four nil, do we? We we can we it, we still don't have to get we don't have to take a battering, um, but Liverpool are relentless, um, but we still don't have to lose that four nil. Um, yeah, I'd say there back- was one good goal and three presents. Mm. You can't yeah, I mean, give that Liverpool a present. That was another that was another bad goal to, to look at, yeah, yeah. Um, so what, what do you put it down to? Uh, is it uh, the main culprit? Is it lack of focus and concentration or is it inexperience and naivety? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think of all of those? I think it's more, more the latter. I think we're, um, we're, we're, we're still, the team is still, you know, learning to play with one another. Um, I didn't expect a four nil. You said, you, you know, you said at the top of the pod, did you expect that? I didn't expect a four nil. I didn't expect to win, but I didn't expect this to lose four nil. I thought we had a little. I thought we were going to do slightly better than that because oh, I don't. It's, it's so frustrating because I think we are better than that. You know, I think we're a better side than that. I just and I think with we we just lost all organisation, and I think that is definitely down to inexperience and naivety. And I do, like I said, I've said it a couple of times, I think there is an inferiority complex within the team at the moment and the manager. Okay, Arteta's picked up some victories against Pep and Klopp in previous seasons, but I think we're at a different stage of his career now. I think we're at a different... This is his, definitely Arteta's squad. And I think this is this is his team with his tactics. And I think he still... I mean, I'm sure he won't admit it, but I still think deep down... He doesn't feel that we we can truly compete with these sides yet, um, and until we start picking up those results, uh, or yeah, picking up those results, that that won't that won't start to change, will it? Um, I think it was all about um, we had no way of relieving the pressure. That was the problem because you know what it's like when you're playing football. If you're just mm-hmm. going to defend for sort of like I don't know seventy minutes, yeah, um, then the pressure eventually you get run ragged. Yeah, and and you crack, mm-hmm. and you crack badly, and and I felt because his tactics were to uh, try and hit them on the counter, which was never going to work because they're just too organised, and uh, their backline was superb, I thought on the day, but it yeah. was it was a bit hopeful, it was a bit not thought out properly, really. Yeah, I mean they they they, they did defend well, but they didn't have too much to trouble them. I think um, I, I I honestly think. Uh, we, we we were set up to try and start well again. I think we, we to try and you know start quick, 
you know, there was the chance at the start, wasn't there, where um, I can't remember who crossed it in from the right-hand side, but Oxlade-Chamberlain came round and hooked it away from Saka. Saka was just about to win the header, say six yards out, and Oxlade-Chamberlain, you know, hooked it away. And I think I think we were set up again to try and start brightly and, and, and hit them on the hit them straight from the off. I think what, what's difficult to plan for is is just the sheer tempo that Liverpool pressed us at. That that, that level is hard Relentless. to yeah it's hard it's hard to in any in any football match you, you you might expect a certain performance from your opposition. You expect them and you obviously come on I mean Arteta and, and everybody in that match day squad coaching staff everybody knows how good Liverpool are. Nobody can really truthfully sort of nail down just what kind of um, press and aggressiveness, aggression rather, that we're going to, that that we saw. Um, And and again, Liverpool are a great side. (laughs) We need to, we need to, we need some perspective here. We lost 4-0, but Liverpool are, they're a great side. You know, those, anyone that sort of finishes ahead of Liverpool will, will probably win the league, right? Um, they'll be they'll be right up there in the Champions League, and we're definitely not at that level. So um, let's look at that fourth goal. Uh, uh, yeah. Minamino just comes on. It's, yeah, to practice yeah. that as well. Ah. Minamino <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just come on, uh, yeah. which was more galling as well, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of heralded the beginning of the fifteen-minute collapse, as I've, I've sort of now termed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no shape. No resistance. Uh, Liverpool probably without Ramsdale probably could have scored another four. Yeah, um, but it was very disappointing. That I mean, he was right at the back post, and I mean, it just fed through to him. I mean, how many? I'd love to know. I'm sure that you, you can get the stat from somewhere. Um, the combined amount of yards that the ball had to carry for me, you know, of all four goals, Minamino was probably two yards out. Salah was probably three. Uh, Mane was probably about five with his header, and and Jota was probably about ten yards out. You know, these weren't worldies. These they was these they were working it well into the box, weren't they? And uh, but we didn't defend well. And, and again, our heads had gone. Um, bad goal do, to concede. Do you think Mister Saliba's watching the telly, going, "Yeah, I could have dealt with that." I think it's men- mentality though. I do think it's a mentality problem that we've got. It's, it's being able to deal with, okay, we're two nil down. We don't have to lose five, four. We don't have to lose five, you know? Um, and I think we could have had anyone at the back there. We just, we just got blew away, didn't we? Yeah. One man can't do it on his own. Um, let's get to the crux of the matter now, because uh, we've taken it on the chin. We're all right. We're, we're going to come back. We'll have another mini run. Uh, and we're sitting fifth. So what's the problem? We were 20th yep. not so long ago. Uh, yep. Lack of creativity. Uh, mm. And more importantly, in attack. Obama Yang was really so poor. Yep. How mm-hmm. this guy gets, what's he get? £350,000 a week. And he can't tell when he's offside. What's yeah. going on? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to pull him apart, but that really annoyed me. And Lacazette, I, I think we've got to forget the Lacazette experiment now because it's yeah. proven with the top level doesn't work. He can't create. Um, the physicality of Lacazette's game was just soaked up. And yeah. uh, we suffered terribly. And then that puts pressure on the two young lads, uh, ESR yeah. and Saka. And they were anonymous mm-hmm. as well, really. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the Bamiang to start with, uh, he was te- he wasn't very good against Watford, and again, he wasn't very good against Liverpool. Um, I think you've got to be looking at uh, Martinelli now, maybe for a chance. He he, he maybe should be given a chance. Um, and I think, but again, we need we need some perspective. The big, the bigger the bigger game for us is definitely the Newcastle game. It's, it's a, you're picking up points against those kind of sides, um, and I still think everybody that we've got, you know, we're going to have to really club together and and and, and put the effort in because there's no there's, again, there's no disgrace in, in losing to Liverpool. Um, if we go out on, I don't even know when the game is against Newcastle Saturday, Sunday, whenever it is. And and we and we crap the bed like we did on Saturday going forward. Then there's real problems, you know. Van Dyke, in all in all honesty, I think we all knew Van Dyke was going to do a number on on Abamyang, and, and was it Matip as well? I think you know these are these are good defenders, and and, and Abamyang. I mean, again, we we both know that he's 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 on his way down, isn't he? Now he's not a striker that's on his way up. You know, he, his his level is dropping. Um, and whatever we can get out of him this season, he's, he's scored goals and he's he's done okay this season. But I think uh, this is this is the best I think we're going to get from him. He, he is going to have the odd game where he scores, but he's going to go these games where he's struggling because his legs have gone, haven't they? <laughs> you know, the trouble is you've got a double-edged sword here, haven't you? He's the club captain, yeah, and he's the the main striker. So mm-hmm. for me, he's not undroppable. And he shouldn't be. Uh, you no. know, you've got a vice captain or whatever, bring him in. But yeah, the performance until, is very, very hit, hit and mean, miss. Until we get, uh, you know, until we sign another striker, he's going to play. He's, he's, he's going to be the main man. Uh, or unless uh, Martinelli can come in and, and really uh, hit the ground running and set the place alight. But I don't really see that happening at the minute. I mean, what would you do for Newcastle? Would you would you go? Would you continue with the Bamiyan? No, no, no. I don't think he's done enough in the last two games. Uh, what's he? You know, a uh, couple of offsides. He's he's poked in a, a goal that was didn't need any help. His mm-hmm. radar seems to be well off. Yeah. Try something different. What you got to lose? You're in fifth place. You might drift down to eighth. Uh, but there's a it's a still a long season. You know, uh, people will yeah. slag me off for that and say, oh, you're just accepting second best. What did you expect this season? Come on. Yeah. 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 You've also got, you know, Balogun's scoring for the under-23s. I know he's not going to be, he's not quite ready yet. However, these are the options that we've got. We don't have too many, do we, going forward? You know, Lacazette isn't going to be the main striker. Um, I mean, what? I mean, I'd probably go with, I mean, Aubameyang will probably start against Newcastle but I think he's there's only I mean how long do you give him if he continues to at this level you know where it's not just his lack of goals it's it's this it's his um he's just not good enough at the moment is he it's just no not leadership no contribution quality's not there he's not contributing at all so right January we're coming up uh towards that um maybe see some reinforcements I would expect that Mikel and Edu have had a chat over a coffee in a bourbon and they've kind of ironed out that they have to get a striker because yeah. we need someone, um, we're not going to get him, someone like an Henri who can function mm-hmm. within the strike force, but he can get you a goal from anywhere and against yeah. the runner play. That's what we need. So let's take some uh, some names. I'll throw yeah. them at you, literally. Mm-hmm. You catch them that end. 
and mm-hmm. you tell me whether you'd have them or not. Uh, Go for it. Tony. I would, I'd take him. I'd take Ivan Tony. I, I kind of saw a few things that I liked when I was watching him and, uh, let's, let's get to the other names because that will point yeah. out why I liked him more than the others. Uh, Ollie Watkins. No. No. Uh, Calvert Lewin. Yeah, I would sign Calvert Lewin. Very rounded. Me, yeah? Good striker. Very, he's good in the air, leads the line well. Yeah, I'd take him. Dress sense is a bit dodgy, but, um... Oh. Oh, let's not even go there. He's <laughs> a charity shop job, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, Isaac. Um, I think he's good, yeah. He's a good sign. I'd, I'd go for him, yeah. I'd, I'd take a punt on him. Valovic. Sounds like a mineral water. Yeah, I think I, I think any of these <laughs> would be pretty much better than what we've got, really. You know, but yeah, I'd take him. Yeah. There's just one more, and I haven't had a chance to look him up, but we'll throw him in there. N Naziri. That's E-N and then Naziri. Uh, apparently, he plays for Sevilla. All oh, right, okay. But uh, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't. I don't think I've ever seen him play, so I couldn't really comment. It might just be a typo. Dave might have uh, done a bit of typing. <laughs> it's all gone wrong. Yeah. I have to ask him. You mentioned Martinelli. Up until that injury, I mean, he, the boy was on fire, wasn't he? Yeah. You just had it in your mind. He, here we go. We found a real gem, and he's been. He hasn't had many chances, in all fairness to mm. him. But mm. when he has had the chance, he's come on and he's looked fairly ordinary apart from mm. the pace yeah he hasn't had much time has he uh he came towards the back end of last season he he managed to get a couple of goals or you know yeah a couple of goals um Aubameyang's not playing very well and I think um as we've already said he's not really he's not in any kind of form so why not why not play him you know Newcastle aren't a great side um I expect him to as the season goes on, I expect Martinelli to, to, to feature a bit more because th- there's a there's a sort of a, a question mark over both Aubameyang and, and Lacazette being at the club next season, right? So you, you kind of expect Martinelli to become more and more involved. Uh, if I was picking a side, yeah, I'd put him in. I'd put him in against Newcastle. What about Enkessia? Who looks like he's going in January, but uh, yeah. we just mentioned him. Yeah, like you say, he's probably going to go in January, so... Get as much for him. Thanks, Eddie. Good luck. I just, I've never been able to take to him. He gets goals, and I don't know what my issue is, but uh, yeah. Uh, and as you said, Balogun, that's the only other option. Uh, there's yeah. that uh, young lad. Bire. Bire. Yeah. Yeah. Bire. yeah. Maybe he's worth a punt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if we had the Europa, I think we probably might have seen one of those, one or two of those. But God, isn't it desperate? We're, we're really like scraping the bottom of the jam jar. Who we got around? <laughs> Who's got two legs and a brain that we can stick on the pitch? <laughs> right, before we go, Jay, I've got uh, Tajinda has sent me this, and you won't be able to see it, but I'll read it out. It's um, it's, it's got the worst Arsenal side of the 21st century, okay? Right. So uh, Tajinda's asked me to read it out and get your thoughts on it. So that's go what we're going to do. Um, so in goal, Manoni, do you think he's worth having in the worst side ever? <laughs> worst side ever. Manoni. God, we've had some real shockers in goal, haven't we? We've had some, we've had some real shockers. What happened in, to Renato? Uh, what's, what's his name? Renarison. Runnison. Yeah, yeah, I think Runnison's Runnison. I'd, I'd probably replace Manone. Yeah, I'd put Runnison in, but Manone was pretty bad. Yeah, go on. He was there so briefly. I forgot his name. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, Andre Santos. Oh yeah, he was a shocker. Yeah, he was a turd, wasn't he? he, he was uh, Stepanovs. Did he? 
Stepanovs, I'm sure, wasn't he at the back end of the 20th century? He didn't play. I think did he won a league. He won the league under Wenger, but it was in. I'm sure it was. Yeah, I was a bit foggy on that one. I wasn't 90, really sure. Was it 96? Maybe I don't know. I might be wrong with that. Dave was having some chiropody, so he didn't do the research as he normally does. <laughs> uh, Squillachi, definitely. Oh, yeah. On. Oh, yeah. Stank yeah, the place out. Stinker. Uh, Vivas, Nelson Vivas, remember? Oh, him? yeah. Yeah, he was, he's atrocious. But again, I think he was at the end of the, he was at the end of the 20th century, wasn't he? But he was awful. Argentine. Yeah. Oh, God. Really bad. Really bad. Oh, we're, we're getting to the, the real sharp end now. Danielson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go along uh, with that. He was, uh, yeah, he was bad. I want to, I want to say he was the worst we've ever had in there, but he was, he was bad, pretty bad. Sideways and backwards, Ronnie Denilson never went forward. This is one I've got the issue with. Van Bronckhorst. I didn't think he was a bad oh, no, player. I liked him. I liked. I liked him. Yeah, yeah. Sold him a bit too early. I thought he was good. To, to Jinder, <laughs> sort your list out, mate. This, this, <laughs> he doesn't belong there. He's too good for this list. Come on, mate. <laughs> yeah, sort it out. He's a, he's a bit of a stinker, Javinho. Oh yeah, yeah, really awful. Yeah, really awful. Hair. Like, do you remember his, his hairline? It was, yeah, Yang keeps thing. going into these little sort of <laughs> antennas, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah. What about Baptista? I quite liked him, to be he honest. Was, yeah, he was why. okay. He was okay. There was there was worse. We've we've had worse. I thought when we signed Baptista, he was going to be immense. He had a really uh, really good reputation, didn't he? Uh, but um, didn't quite work out for him. He scored the four at Anfield, didn't he? In the he court. was solid as well, wasn't he? He yeah, was big, built like a guy. boxer, heavyweight yeah, boxer. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're going to disagree with you, Tajinda, on these last two. Uh, William. Oh. The pick is a pick. Yeah. And uh, Franny Jeffers up top. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good old Jeffers. Always gets in these teams, doesn't he, poor lad? <laughs> he always makes them, doesn't he? Bless him. God, if, if he's somewhere listening to this with an Arsenal fan, um, he, he just want to like drive off a cliff, wouldn't he? Really, always makes, always makes those worst Wenger 11s, worst Arsenal eleven of life of the anyone's lifetime. But yeah, but this yeah. is the thing with the English players, isn't it? Uh, Wenger sort of said, when you get these English lads uh, and the press sort of wipe them up, and then they're the next this, the next that, and then they just fall away. Look at Jermaine Pennant. Mm. Paid a million yeah. for him, and he was only a teenager. And I think he was about sixteen at the time, wasn't he? And yeah. he, he, he blew hot and cold, and we just lost him. I think he went Liverpool and every other club in under the, the sun. Yeah. yeah, but uh, Jake, we've we've come to the end. Um, let's still let's just leave him on a positive note. Uh, yeah. Newcastle next. What's your thoughts? I think we'll get it. I think we'll win. Uh, I think it'll be a tight game, similar to the to the Watford game. I think we'll probably just nick it by one. I'll go two one, Arsenal. I'm going to go three one. I think we're going to have a really tight sort of first half, maybe uh, a bit squeaky in the second half to start with, and then I think they're going to lose their way because I've been to some Newcastle games, uh, especially at the Emirates as well, where they look like they're on, on solid ground. They're doing really well. Then suddenly mm-hmm. it just they get overwhelmed and they just snap, and I'm hoping yeah. that's going to be the case because we could do with a win just to straighten things yeah. up. Yeah, and again, it's it, three points puts us right back in the mix. I mean, we're already still, you know, fifth. We're in a couple of what three points off the top four. So 
you know, even after such a, a heavy defeat, we're still in a good position. And three points against Newcastle, again, puts us right back in there and puts us in a good, you know, it's Man United after that, isn't it? Um, so puts us in a good position for... Have you noticed how many teams we've played recently that have sacked their manager? Yeah. Norwich, yeah. Aston Villa. Like, you get beat by Arsenal. And... <laughs> uh, Klopp's fairly safe, though. We can assume that. So <laughs> let's leave the, the people on uh, a positive vibe. Uh, what's your resounding uh, takeaway from, to coin a phrase from Isaiah, your takeaway from the Liverpool game? What, uh, what can you see as a positive? Uh, I think... Even watching the game, just personally watching it, it was never nice to concede those goals. It was, we, as we've gone over, the goals were poor to, uh, to, to, to concede. But overall, still positive. We're still in a good position. Uh, Aaron Ramsdale, again, put in a great performance. Um, and I think one of the main positives, if, if positives are that we don't have to go to Anfield again this season. So <laughs> let's, let's, let's try and remain positive and... Uh, and and cheer the lads on against Newcastle. Yeah, I think Ramsdale was my my pick of the bunch. I mean, but for him, we would have been uh, we would have been undone oh. badly in the first half. How he pulls these saves off, and I liked at the end before we go uh, the positivity when he was asked uh, about the result, and he said, "Look, mm-hmm. we're not going to dwell on it. We're just going to yeah. roll on and uh, and keep going." And I like that, mm-hmm. and that's why he's such a an asset to Arsenal. Absolutely. And we yeah. said this, we said this on this podcast, we are going to pat ourselves on the back and God knows what else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, okay, Jake, going to let you go. Get on with your evening. And um, yeah, I'll see you next time. Take care, mate. I had a brain fart then. <laughs> <laughs> see you later. See you later. From Nepal to North London, from Delhi to Dagenham, from the terraces to the armchair, it's an Arsenal Thing podcast. Right, it's part two of our walk down memory lane in the tribute to Highbury. Brilliant finish! I thought Nigel Winterburn didn't get the recognition he merited. He was such a good defender. He could move up the field, and I think he didn't get the recognition he deserved. Ian Wright, just because absolute legend, always score a goal in the right place at the right time. My first ever game, Arsenal Everton 2 0. One of the most memorable goals I've ever seen. And he logged over Southall, and Southall didn't even realise it went in. A magic goal from Ian Wright! My favourite player would probably be David Pope. It's the earliest memory I've got of any Arsenal player, and I was quite young, about nine years old. I just remember him. He was quite old, about 33, but he was still brilliant. I think Patrick Vieira was a fabulous player for Arsenal for many reasons. A Frenchman, a black man and a captain of Arsenal. And a fine, fine player, probably one of the best in the world in his position over a long period of time. Is something I, I think Arsenal can be proud of as well. Dennis Bergkamp, I mean, mustn't forget what a genius he was. I remember a goal he got against Barnsley in the 98 season when we sit now in the West Lower. And, it, and he was in front of us, running towards the goal, and he shot, and it really just swerved right out and inside the post. Only Burkamp can do this. I thought about this, and I'm going to pick a player who wasn't really a star in his time at Highbury, um, but he did it for me, and that was Gilles Grimondi. Because he just fought and fought and fought, he never gave up, and he wasn't 
the most naturally talented player at the, at the club. But I do remember one match when we uh, won the double in 97-98 and um, almost all the players were out and I think he was one of the few senior players available and he scored and we won 1-0 and that goal was as important as any goal at the end of the day in winning the league so Gilles if you're watching respect Gilles was one of the 80 players from the last half century who paid their own personal respects to Highbury at the closing ceremony the parade of so many Arsenal legends and the messages written on the walls of the marble halls showed how much the old ground meant to the players. I owe Highbury so much. I mean, I've been lucky because I not only had a football career here for 12 years as a goalie, I was a goalkeeping coach for 28 years. I say, you know, without Arsenal, without Highbury, there would be no Bob Wilson. always said that when I walked out here I, I felt it was like a cathedral and for me it was a bit spiritual to be honest with you and I still look on this place as being far more than a football ground. It's a warm place you know I know the tea lady here she still knows I have four sugars in a mug of tea and you know little things like that and you know all the people that work behind the scenes they, they was here when I first signed in 1980 which is you know 26 years ago and I think that's what makes this club special. Well, Highbury is, is the typical English stadium. It, it smells of tradition. It, it, you look at it, it's, it's history. It, just being in there, you, you know you're, you're part of, of, of something. When I first uh, joined, I remember having the press conference, walking up the stairs, seeing the boardroom, seeing the trophy room, looking out uh, in the stand towards the pitch. It stands for English football. That's uh, why I came to England for, and that's what I found. I grew up there and uh, it was a very special place for me. In my day, um, as it was for the players before me, Highbury wasn't only where we played our games on, on Saturday, Highbury was where we trained, Highbury was where we lived really. The Arsenal don't believe in stunts. For them it's steady groundwork, tuning muscles up to the highest pitch. And now the boys are having a bit of practice on the field. So Highbury was a place where skills and technique were fine-tuned. Arsenal's stars of the 30s became so good with their heads, they even put on a ball-juggling display at the London Palladium on one occasion. Attention was also paid to the physical side, and Highbury boasted a range of state-of-the-art facilities to help fitness and physique. But it was the luxurious dressing room with its heated floors that was the envy of every other club. The dressing room, I think, is very, very special for me because, you know, it was built in 1938 and it must have been like a palace. And when you walk in there, you can smell the tradition in this dressing room. We always have the windows open because of the, the famous underfloor heating here and uh, we would see all the fans walking up and down. It was an original, no, it was unbelievable. Uh, the atmosphere, how you could, you, it was all around you when the players were getting ready to go out on the pitch. It happened a few times that the supporters were not happy. So we shouted the players from outside here. <laughs> so you get straight away the response of your performance, you know. But uh, most of the time it's encouragement. You hear people chanting before the game, come on Arsenal, and, uh, and uh, motivating the team and the players. I feel it's a good test, you know, with a selection. When the pressure can be mean inhibition. And then you walk out there, you're paralyzed. And you see straight away, the player who has that syndrome cannot play for Arsenal Football Club because the pressure is so big. 
The favourite place for me has to be where we are here now because the moment you came here you have the moment of truth. For any player, some can handle it, some can't handle it. I used to be really nervous till I got to this point here, daylight. All through there I was as nervous as any goalkeeper you'd ever know. But the moment I hit daylight it was like throwing a switch. This is what you've chosen to do, now go out and prove it again. We had a, a good feeling when we were running on the pitch. We were almost unbeatable here and, and we knew that. Almost untouchable. And it was a marvellous club to play for and, and playing at Highbury, uh, to score goals at Highbury was just something special. most difficult stadium to play, especially for a goalkeeper, because the stands have different heights, um, the corners are different, so the wind which is coming in is blowing differently. Sometimes the sun disappears, then it comes back because of the different height of the stands. It's very difficult to play, but uh, it creates a special atmosphere. I really enjoy the, the, the atmosphere, you know. Uh, it has been uh, two, three years uh, in an um, amazing uh, feeling inside of me when I was there. And I hope it will continue like that, but 500 meters away. In amongst the streets and houses of London N5 is where you'll find Highbury. It's been here since 1913 when the club moved from south of the River Thames to take up residency among the Islington community. I just live around the corner and you really get the feeling that Highbury and Arsenal is such a massive part of this area. People talk about community clubs and things that you do for the community. It permeates everyday life. The fact that you're not in some out of town uh, a spot by a motorway where there's nothing there but the football stadium and people are sort of interacting with their everyday lives and this buzz of, of the big match just makes it absolutely spectacularly special. When I arrived here for the first time I felt that uh, first we are surprised because I said to the cab driver are you sure that you know where you go? He says yes we arrive in a minute. I said it cannot be true in a minute I don't see any stadium you know. A lot of people who come not just from England, but from abroad. And one of the things they can't believe is you're just walking down the street of normal looking houses and then suddenly this very uh, beautiful and elegant Art Deco with the cream and the red, just, it's just so striking. And it gives you the, the sense of history as well because it's obviously goes back to the beginnings of, of Highbury and football being played in this part of North London. So, how did the Gunners end up at Highbury, particularly as they began life in South London as Dial Square back in 1886? Plumstead Common was the first home of the team of armaments workers who swiftly renamed themselves Royal Arsenal, then Woolwich Arsenal when they entered the Football League in 1893. By now they'd moved to the Manor Ground where they led an inauspicious life spent among the lower reaches of the first and second divisions. But the move to the north of London was to change all that. Arsenal moved here in, in 1913 and, and the reason they moved was basically they were a runner-of-the-mill club 
going nowhere in Plumstead. The ground that they had there was very poor in terms of public transport facilities. But most of all, they, they moved because their chairman, Henry Norris, was a really immensely ambitious and ego-driven man. And what he originally wanted to do is he wanted to amalgamate Woolwich Arsenal with Fulham, who already were playing by the Thames in this delightful stadium at Craven Cottage, and for both clubs to play there. But the Football Association put their uh, foot down and said, no, you can't. So then what he's decided to do was move Plumstead 10 miles north into this patch of London. And he did that by, literally, he hired the great football grand supremo of the time, Archibald Leach, a Scottish engineer, um, and they looked at three or four sites around London. And his eye fell upon the St. John's Theological College, which is on right here where we're sitting at the moment, uh, who had fairly substantial playing fields. But what made Highbury different from a lot of other grounds was that it was right next door to a tube station. This was the crucial thing. This is why Norris and Leach between them decided that this was going to be the place for the new ground. Arsenal began life at Highbury as a second division team, playing under the managership of George Morell. They attracted reasonable crowds, averaging 20,000 in their first season in their newly built but humble home. It was basically a bog-standard ground of the time. One stand, a very basic stand, with about 4,000 seats with a terrace in front, and the rest of the ground with three sides of terracing. Big, uncovered mounds, not a, an inch of cover for standing spectators, crush barriers, very few toilets or facilities, very few entrances actually to the ground, just in the corner by the tube station, nothing on Highbury Hill at all. In planning terms, an absolute nightmare. It would never be allowed in this day and age. The modern-day Highbury and the amazing new Emirates Stadium are a world away from these modest beginnings in terms of facilities and features. But what they do share is the same postcode. The move to the new stadium means Arsenal's stay in N5, and it's been a vital part of the relocation plans from the start. Playing anywhere else wasn't an option. It's another dream come true, because being here and playing in front of 38,000 people, when we know every game we could sell out another 20 or 30,000 seats as a minimum. So we needed to move. The question is, where could we move to? But to stay in the borough and to stay locally, which is only five minutes away, and build a state-of-the-art stadium is something which will be the pride and joy, I'm sure, for every Arsenal fan. The idea that they were going to go and play maybe at Wembley or out on the M25 or God knows where was just, I think, unthinkable. Um, and the, the saving grace to the romantics who can't really bear the thought of not being here, the saving grace is that we're just over there. That was uh, vital to me, not to say from now on you have to go to South London, that would have been a disaster. That's a big achievement of, of uh, the board to have realized that and uh, to have uh, materialized it, that just walk, you don't lose your habits, just walk in a bigger flat, you know. You still come home, the flat is just a bit bigger. In 1925, Arsenal appointed Herbert Chapman as manager and in the process transformed both the club and Highbury itself. Here's Mr. Herbert Chapman, the famous manager with his lads at Highbury. 
I still think he was the greatest football manager this country has ever had. He wanted to make Arsenal an outstandingly modern club, and uh, Ch Chapman was extraordinary. I mean, his, his innovations were, were just uh, legion. When Herbert Chapman took over the club in, in 1925, um, it took him a few years to settle in and to, to get his feet and then to appreciate what the possibilities of a club like this in central London were. Um, and one of the first things he and the architect did was they rebranded the club in, in modern day terms. That's the kind of terminology that we'd use. And just this symbol here with the football, the A and the C, Arsenal Football Club in itself is a fantastic piece of corporate branding. Oh, you look all around Highbury and you see examples of that. It's taking football from the Victorian era into the 20th century. And this is what Highbury embodies. It's this synthesis between architecture and innovation. Chapman was hugely influential in persuading London Transport to change the name of Gillespie Road Tube Station to Arsenal, which gave the club a huge boost in raising awareness. Well, I think it was tremendous from their point of view. It's, it's, it's like a, they branded it, didn't they? Everybody knew this was Arsenal. Everybody knew when you wanted to come, it was Arsenal. I mean, I, I don't think there's any parallel in, uh, on the local rail system or the tube system all over London. It's quite unique. Tragically, Chapman died before he saw many of his ideas reach fruition. But the club never forgot his contribution and commissioned this bronze bust in the marble halls, which welcomed visitors to Highbury for 70 years. The Chapman bust really is, if you like, the beating heart of Arsenal. And when he died in, in January 1934, really at the peak of his powers in the middle of Arsenal's phenomenal run of success in the 1930s, it was something that nobody could believe. It was an enormous shock. So that bust is not just for his achievements, but, but that sense of loss that people felt. And who better to, to sculpt his likeness than uh, Jacob Epstein, one of, one of the greatest artists of the time. Um, it would be a bit like um, a, a Damien Hirst or a Tracy Ennin or someone like that being asked to sculpt Arsene Wenger. But only Arsenal would have thought of hiring Jacob Epstein to have done that particular bust. I think he wanted to create a club that set standards and um, gave an example to everybody else and looked forward, was always forward-looking, and I think Chapman's vision has been taken up uh, dramatically by Arsene Wenger, who understands the history of this club, and particularly of the innovator that was Chapman. Unbelievable man, the one you compare to when you come to Arsenal Football Club, you know, and the marble hall for me is there, is that you directly realize that such a prestigious man who has given not only football, to his club football trophies by division. After Chapman, only 11 managers have sat in the Highbury hot seat. His successor, George Allison, continued to lead the Gunners to glory, winning titles in 1934, 35 and 38, as well as the FA Cup in 1936. Well, here you see before you on the screen the playing forces of the Arsenal Football Club. Allison's assistant, Tom Whitaker, graduated from trainer to manager and landed two league titles in 48 and 53, as well as the Cup in 1950. Arsenal are going all out for championship honours this season. We have some of the finest players in the game today, and they will certainly be leaving their mark in league football. 
Bertie Mee, seen here in the white coat, followed a similar career path to Whitaker, moving from behind the scenes at Highbury, where he was physio, to take on the prestigious role of manager. Mee landed the double in 1971, eclipsing even Chapman with this achievement. Oh, Charlie George, you can hit him! Irishman Terry Neal captained the side in the 1960s, then had the honour of taking the Gunners to three straight cup finals as manager. And the next man to bring silverware back to Highbury was another former Arsenal player, George Graham. Graham! Under his guidance, the team won two titles, an FA Cup, two League Cups and the European Cup Winners' Cup. I think without question, Arsenal and especially Highbury played the main point in my football career. Nobody, I think, including myself, ever thought that I would uh, go on to, uh, to be uh, a coach and then a manager uh, and then eventually come back here to the, the Marble Halls at Highbury and be in charge. I mean, it was like, you know, it was Roy the Rovers. We played this before, but myself and Dave absolutely love it. Here's Ivor Game and Highbury. Can you imagine this song was played at Highbury whilst Ivor was in attendance. And if you want to catch up on the conversation that we had, myself and Ivor, it's episode 23 in the dugout. Going home to Highbury On my favourite bus number 19 If today was not so clear I can disappear in Highbury I can just afford the odd night out, but nothing more. What a way to stand still on the hill in Highbury. I just know the folks across the road and underneath, and they say that someone
Now then, it's common for coaches and players in the modern game to speak more than one language. Arsene Wenger could speak English, French, Spanish, German and Italian. Spanish Michael speaks English, some French, Italian and Portuguese. But nothing compares to the scouser and talented linguist Joey Barton. If you can't speak the language, just sound as if you can. As I said yesterday, I make one tackle and all everybody speaks about is this tackle. Nobody speaks about a 50-yard pass that kills Balmon and, and it causes a red card for him. Um, and nobody sh- talks about the shot that um, Landru would have uh, been happy to, to see. You know, he didn't see the ball, never mind uh, have a chance to save it. So for me, it's important that people speak about uh, the qualities I bring as a footballer and uh, I'm a little bit bored, you know, from the English media and hopefully the French media is have more about has more about it than the, the English media and, and concentrate on uh, uh, li- stupid little uh, incidents like this. Maybe the one criticism of the French league is it's it's a little bit uh, boring, you know, they... Yeah, and I, I can understand, you know, I watched uh, Lille yesterday, they have 10 men and they're happy to lose 1-0, uh, you know, they, they have 10 men and for me, you might as well lose 5-0 as 1-0, you know, it's still no points. He's Argentine and I'm English, it's big difference, big, big difference. <laughs> <laughs> A big ocean. The Atlantic is different. It reminded me of another fluent French accent. <coughs> I was pissing by the door. <laughs> when I heard two shots. <laughs> you are holding in your hand a smoking goon. <laughs> you are clearly the guilty potty. <laughs> I did not do it. Tell them I did not do it. I was not looking. (laughs) Right, we're all done here. My thanks to Dave, Isaiah and Jay. Check out Isaiah's blogs at americanarsenology.medium.com or look him up on Twitter. You can find Dave on Twitter as SilentDave101 and Jay as the Borguna. Shout outs to SOMD, Brandon Murphy. Check out the YouTube version of the show and please like, follow or subscribe. Look up our blogs at AskDevils.com or look us up on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We'll see you next time. Stay safe and well. And remember, North London is red. (laughs) 